Hello everyone, welcome to episode 6 of Quarter Life Crazy. Today's topic is fashion politics with Bandana. Bandana is an ex-fashion features director at Vogue Mumbai and is now a sustainability activist as well as a lifestyle journalist. Please, please listen to this one if you're interested in fashion, politics and sustainability. It's got everything for you. Enjoy! Hello everyone, this is Quarter Life Crazy with Amy Manson. Today we have a special guest called Bandana. Yay, happy to be here. Hey Bandana, how are you today? I am feeling great because you've come in with this energy that I needed today. Oh, well, thank you. I take that as a lovely compliment. I'm so excited for this interview. This episode today is called Politics and Bandana. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, my name, my full name is Bandana Tuari. I am originally from Nepal, but I grew up in India. I grew up in the, the foothills of the Himalayas. Wow. I went to boarding school to a very, very strict Catholic convent in Darjeeling, where the tea comes from, right up north. So it was an idyllic childhood facing the Kanchenjunga as you recited Macbeth. Oh, wow. <laughs> was the school in done in English? It, well, the school was called Loretto Convent. Oh, okay. It was one of the schools that came up, which basically was to cater to the young British children uh, during British Raj, when India was colonized. Yes. And if you've ever, ever been to Darjeeling, the weather in Darjeeling, which is right up north in the foothills of the Himalayas, is very much like London itself. Yeah. It's sort of gloomy, foggy weather. It's cold. Cold temperature, yes. cloudy. So it was, can you imagine the rest of India is burning and sithering in the, in <laughs> in the, the heat. heat. <laughs> and the kids would be sent up to mountaintops, to these incredible Gothic monuments of schools. And so I was part of, I was certainly not part of um, colonized India, but the school uh, remained. They existed even post-colonization and they became sort of the fulcrum of education. Of course, English education. Yeah. And so, in a very classist way, as it happens in India, as you know, there's so many classes. If you were the privileged class, then you would be sent to these schools because you were taught as if you were being taught in Oxford, for instance, you yeah. know, with a clipped English accent and the blah and the bleak. So anyway, but I did have a great time. I, I was there for 10 years, my entire... Uh, education uh, you know, right up to high school and then I went around India to study and then that's when your eyes open up to another reality because I was living in an idyllic bubble so I studied in Calcutta in a French foundation school then I went to New Delhi into a very prissy all-women's college to do my Bachelor of Art in Victorian Literature wow. <laughs> I mean ironic <laughs> and then I did my Master's in Filmmaking Wow. In New Delhi. Then I joined Discovery Channel. And then I was bored because no one wanted me to be a documentary filmmaker. And then I read a bunch of scripts from the archives of Discovery Channel and found some that were made about fashion. And I found those fascinating because the titles I still remember of those documentaries is fashion and gender, fashion and politics, fashion and economy. And I was like, what the F? How on earth does fashion have anything to do with all these sociological, psychological movements in the world yeah. of our everyday lives. And so I deep dived in my sheer boredom at my job and educated myself and decided I wanted to be a journalist. Yes. And so I wasn't trained in fashion whatsoever. And I think that helped because my uh, lens of looking into fashion became very sociological and psychological. Yeah. So if you ask me, why are you wearing why are everyone wearing mini skirts? Then I could relate it to what kind of gender politics was at the time. Yes. Or if in the 80s, why did we eulogize the idea of wearing shoulder pads and making women look bigger than they were and their hair was big and the shoulder pads were big. And, and yeah, and the makeup was big. Everything was bold. It was also a time that women went and worked in the financial districts of America for the first time and they want to, wanted to appropriate their physicality to look like men, like big boisterous men, you know, strong men, big shouldered men. 
And so women appropriated the, the, those nuances of masculine physicality into their clothes. Wow. So for me, fashion is always about this deeper sense, the subliminal levels of uh, our conscious choices that we make, not because we are taught that blue is the new black or, you know, white is, you know, the color of summer. I think there is much more to fashion if you deep dive into it. And that's what got me interested into fashion. Yeah. And so I wrote um, in various publications till, of course, Vogue launched in India and I joined Vogue India and I worked for 13 years with them. 13 years in Vogue India, wow. So you're in India, so you're working for Vogue. Um, tell me more about that. How was that? When I started working with Vogue, it was the most exciting time. You can well imagine a huge economy that's opened up to the world. Yeah. The luxury segment has just opened too. So this is the time when the Louis Vuittons, the Gucci's and the Dior's are opening their big, big, fancy stores. Um, and Vogue launches and we all have to participate in communicating what these big international brands mean to a country like India. Yeah. So we were almost... And in quotes, educating Indians about foreign brands at the same time telling the foreign brands what India was all about. Wow, okay, so it's a two-way system? It was a two-way system. It does get skewed after a while because you're talking about massively rich, affluent Western brands that come into a country that is almost 5,000 years old with all the heritage and the provenance of history. But that gets if I may say so, a little subdued and disregarded because consumerism takes over. So it is about the bag that came from, from New York or Paris or Milan. And we forget that there is a whole history of Indian fashion that gets sidelined. Yeah, traditionals. Traditional, oh, like yeah. the history of the sari that existed for 4,000 years old and people are still wearing it. Women are still on the streets wearing it. They're handmade, they're handlooms. So what happens with this hyper-consumerism is that whoever is a stronger nation has a bigger voice. So it was a, a checkered um, professional life where, yes, I loved every bit about fashion working in Vogue and traveling to Paris Fashion Week and Milan Fashion Week and interviewing these incredible designers, yeah. right? And coming back home and thinking, but what about our own historical fashion that is still alive on the streets? How do we talk about it in a modern way as modern human beings, as people, as women like me? I'm not the only one. There are millions of women like me who are educated, who had a lot of privileges in life. And so uh, do we use our voice now to like bring a little bit of an equilibrium in the way we talk about Western fashion and Eastern fashion? Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. For me, it, one, going back to what you were saying originally about there is a deeper meaning behind the fashion. I think we forget <clears throat> that. For me, who I don't follow fashion, for you to even talk about the suits with the big shoulders, talking about um, there was a meaning behind that. There's so much meaning in fashion that I think a lot of people wouldn't understand, right? And they wouldn't understand because, yeah. you know, as journalists, um, not all journalists deep dive into making people understand. Like, there's a reason why Coco Chanel, for instance, became so famous because she decided that women needed to be more mobile. Yeah. You know, from the early 1900s on where women were wearing all these flouncy skirts, they could the barely bend. Yeah. yeah, with those undergarments, the crinolines and what have you, and bustiers that were squishing their tits, you know. And there comes Coco Chanel and she says, I'm going to make clothes in Jersey, you know, where you can play tennis. Yeah. The sports clothing came out of her incredible vision to make women more mobile, go outside, get a tan. So if you got a tan, it meant that you had the money to travel, that you'd gone on a cruise, that you had gone to Morocco for a holiday. And so the clothing reflected that. So Coco Chanel, who, whose most famous dress, the little black dress, actually was an appropriation from uh, the maid's uniform. And why is the maid's uniform so supple? It's because she could work while wearing it. So she turned that into a little black dress. 
you know? Yes. A little black vest where you can go and do a sprint, wear it with your heels or your ballerina flats. And that became one of the iconic items in fashion. Wow, that's insane. <clears throat> um, so you're at this point of your career and you've just launched Vogue. Um, you're an editor there? Sorry. I'm fashion features editor, fashion which means features. anything that's written about fashion came under my purview. So am I getting this right? Do you have a conflict then at the moment between Western fashion and Eastern fashion? Is that is Explain a bit more about the conflict. Yes. Well, the conflict is very personal. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying everyone who worked in Vogue had a similar journey or trajectory of conflict. My conflict was very personal. It was like every time we thought of doing, let's say, a story on the, the little black dress that is eulogized in fashion, I thought, what's the equivalent in the Indian subcontinent? It's the little black sari. We all have a chiffon black sari that is super sexy in our wardrobe. Mm -hmm. When we go for cocktail parties, we wear a little a bikini blouse and wrap that slithery, uh, translucent chiffon black sari and we wear it with our heels. And we find it empowering, it's sexy, it's feminine, but we're still wearing the sari, which is 4,000, 5,000 years old. We do that every time in India, and that's a living fashion culture. So I thought it'd be wonderful for every big story that we did, which was about the Western world telling us what fashion was about, that we from the Indian subcontinent should be able to tell the West too. This is our story. So that conflict turned into something that became quite magical because, you know, when you start thinking in those lines, then you're constantly thinking, oh, made in France? which we will pay tons of money for, or made in Italy. How about talking about made in India? Because we have a legacy of the best embroiderers, best handloom, handmade fabrics. So you could juxtapose similar dialogue that exists in the West yeah. to the East. And that I enjoyed personally as a journalist. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. What... Um, can you give me an example of one of the best kind of features, fashion that you worked on? What was the most exciting project at that time for you? You know, so many features that were exciting. And don't forget, it's always a team effort and we put our heads together. And one of them was, I think it was our fifth anniversary of Vogue India. And we had a massive budget to do big stories. And so I thought, well, how about we take the best of Indian handicraft? handmade fabrics and we give it to the best of international designers and tell them make something beautiful out of this handmade fabric from a tiny village in India. It could be Gujarat or Rajasthan or Kerala. And so I went personally, I went to villages, sat with the artisans, saw the looms in their homes, how they create with their hands. And I remember I had a, it looked like a shop in the Vogue office in Bombay where all these fabrics would arrive. Unbelievably beautiful fabrics. If you them. touch it, you feel it, you'd squeal in delight. And they were all handmade. Wow. And they, they came with a history of families who made it, generations that made it. And I remember writing handmade notes to big designers that don't mess around with their DNA. I'm talking about the, the Gucci's and the Fendi's and the Ferragamo's and the Louboutins. They would not. They have their own DNA. They don't want to just make anything for anyone and I would write these handwritten notes saying this is the village I was in I would have a shitty pdf I would have done with like these are the kids playing in the background while the mothers are weaving this is how they live it's the history isn't it you know it's a whole picture yeah. and then pack the fabric in the most beautiful handmade paper from India and then ship it out I just struck gold I was lucky we had 32 international designers who agreed to make one-off beautiful garment. And the first person to do it, and I, I give him full credit for encouraging me to uh, continue this journey of asking and being fearless and asking these big, big international designers to work with rural artisans in India was Burberry. Oh, wow. And Christopher Bailey at the time was a creative director and I just met him in Taipei for a high-tech event, the opposite of handmade. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So after Mass-produced, high-tech. High-tech, yeah. but 360-degree tech immersion where there's a holographic 
fashion show. Wow. You know, and after I interviewed him, I showed him the shitty little PDFs I've taken <laughs> of villages <laughs> and artisans in India. Yeah. And I showed him what fabric and it's the kind of fabric I knew he would love because it's handmade. It's called Maheshwari silk. It has a little bit of gold touch, but has a khaki color that you see in the, the khaki trench, Burberry trench. Yeah. So I said, do you think you could make, you know, your classic trench in this handloom from India? And he said, I would love to. Oh and I have, I have, I have a whole series. We did a whole series. So when Burberry did it, then Gucci, then Fendi, then Ferragamo, then Christian Louboutin, Hermes, 32 of them. And you have to burp up that Bipu Mopath from Prabal Gurung. There were, there were New York designers, Italian designers, um, Parisian designers. They all participated. And it turned out to be the, one of the best things I've done in my life. That because I'm, not, I'm nothing but a conduit. I was just the middleman in between the extraordinary artisans and the extraordinary designers. And it came out as a very humble, uplifting project. And that's when I realized, you know, the value of made by hand mm-hmm. and the value of great craft. What was skills. that project called? It's called Project Renaissance. If you go online yeah. and you type Vogue India Project Renaissance, you'll see oh the Burberry God. jacket. So you will see the Gucci dress made out of the double ikat that comes out of Gujarat. It takes almost four years to make a piece of fabric. It's four, four years. years. It is, you will cry when you see, if you Google, if you go to YouTube and see how a double ikat is made, you, it's like meditation. You need patience, you need time, you need kindness, you need compassion to make fabrics of that kind. And so, yes, just Google Project Renaissance and you'll see these incredible images. I mean, I, it just makes my heart like, it fill up. It sounds amazing. <laughs> I want to feel the fabrics. I want to look at it. I want to try them on. I'm like, wow, that looks great. So when you're saying you were a conduit, so you're, although it seems like it's just a conduit to me, it's like you're creating two worlds and you're to, to, um, joining two worlds together, right? And that is so, for me, it just sounds so empowering and magical because you're trying to get the best of both worlds and it's education, right? Joining two different things together and, and of course, promoting the culture that has been there for thousands of years. Was there any, did you have any resistance from that? Did, for, did anyone give you any resistance? Was there a lot of any, because when you're joining two things, there may be concerns that you're going to lose something authentic from the from. The original, was there anything that... Uh, there was no resistance in the sense that the artisans need the work. Okay. So to be able to collaborate, but collaborate and co-create, not just be the pawns of an industry where, which we see now, yeah. all the top international designers, all the embroidery, the best of embroideries that you see, see today, you name the biggest brands that relies on embroidery, the embroidery happens in India. Oh, wow. I do, I'm, I'm not saying that they're not paid well for it. But now it's not just about payment, right? We also have to acknowledge the provenance, where it comes from. If that level of high-skilled embroidery work comes from India, somewhere along the line, we need to acknowledge that. Yes. You cannot prop up a product that has been assembled the best have been taken from different countries and assembled in a country, in one country. You can't acknowledge just one country for yeah, that. 100%. Right? So it's there's very... There's so much story behind it. There's so much story behind it. And that storytelling is so important. And so as writers, as journalists, as editors, my uh, grouse at that time and my inner anger was from the fact that we didn't give enough credit to the, the craftspeople of the world. And I'm not just talking about India. This happens all over the world. A word like, a phrase like cultural appropriation became such a big term because, you know, big brands were dipping into the Mexican heritage, Colombian, Peruvian, Indian, Romanian, and using their design nuances and then putting up in Paris Fashion Week and calling it their own and not giving credit 
to where it actually came from. You know where it originated yeah. from? Yes. So and they're getting the profit from it as well then. So they yeah, get the and how much of the profit does go, does it go back to where you've taken those influences from, those inspirations from? So there is a big movement now, which is started by my friend called Monica, who's a Romanian uh, a lawyer who loves fashion. And she started something called Cultural Intellectual Property Rights. You all know about intellectual property yeah. rights, but cultural intellectual property rights. Because now we've got to, if you're going to take from someone, someone's culture, then you better make sure that you, first of all, give credit, that you compensate, so there's enough money that's being sent, and that you get consent, the yes. three Cs. Yeah. Otherwise, you're pillaging somebody else's culture. Repeat that for me. So Credit. Credit, yeah. That means you credit. Yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. taking something from Romania, you have to say, exactly. it's that, that blouse, the shape, the silhouette came from Romania. Compensation. If you're going to use that silhouette on the ramp, then you make sure money is plowed back into the Romanian artisanal communities. And then the last is, of course, consent. You have to take permission from that culture to be able to use it in a different platform. Because these um, design nuances have existed for generations. It's what your great-grandmothers have passed on to you. So we can't come from another culture and just pillage it and use it and culturally appropriate it without the three C's being accounted for. Because if you don't do that, then it's sabotaging somebody else's culture and their heritage and their history. Yeah, it's stealing, isn't it? Yeah, it's about disrespecting somebody else's culture. Wow. So was that, so when you're creating, you're joining this together, you're um, crediting um, the right people, what was, how did it change? How did it change in India? So like you, the, with the fashion features and the editors, what was going on in that time of the world? Well, oh my gosh, when I was in Vogue India for 13 years, it was the high of the highs. Yeah. You know, it is when being in a mammoth um, brand like Condé Nast, it was like, you've just reached that game. Now you're playing it, you're on top of it, and it's a high. I enjoyed every bit of it. I learned so much from it. The doors that open for you, yeah. you know, it was amazing. But on my, as a personal uh, journey, there was also a side of me that started feeling a bit guilty because I do come from, I'm Nepalese, grew up in India. You've been to India and you know that you walk down the street and there's a billionaire's home on the right hand and there's slums on the left. Someone's buying a watch that costs $10,000 and the other one is scraping to get a 10 cent meal. And so it was a very personal journey, nothing to take away from the joy of being in Vogue. For me, it was a journey of feeling um, guilty. And is, it, is this it? Like, how can, how can some people spend so much money and the others are scraping the, bottle of, the bottom of the barrel to survive? And so when I moved to Bali, yeah. there was a very organic shift for me to move away from hyper-consumerism, all the fun and the joy and the drama of fashion to becoming a fashion sustainability activist. So where you stand up for the rights of factory workers, of artisans, of craftspeople, or where you stand up for sustainability in terms of how destructive is the T-shirt to the environment? Yeah. How much polyester are you wearing on your body? How are we, are we innovating anymore? Like are we, is your government using policies to make sure that we're not polluting rivers because we are throwing in all the dyes that come from fast fashion factories straight into the river that goes into the seas. And every time we are wearing polyester, all the microfibers that go into the water systems that go to the sea and a fish are eating it and we are eating the fish. So our bodies are full of microplastics. So that's a different world of fashion. Yeah. But it is still fashion. It's still consumerism, it is still, we will always wear clothes. So then how do we become conscious consumers? 
Yeah, because I can't remember the, I can't find out the statistics, but um, I was doing this work for this company in Hong Kong once, and they were talking about how the dyes, when you dye a t-shirt that's only one colour, it's something like, I can't even, I'm going to find out, but a certain amount of tonnes of water that you're using, and you're like, what? Just for one t-shirt, you're using that amount of water? The amount of water that is used for one t-shirt is what you would drink as one human being for two and a half years. <gasps> that's insane. Let me give you more statistics yeah, because, more. you know, when we listen to numbers, they become jumbled. Yeah, I'm dyslexic, so every second a garbage truck of clothes is either burnt or goes into a landfill. Every second. That's how much people are buying and throwing away. So all the fast fashion brands, we're like, oh my gosh, that just cost me $3. I'll wear it twice and then you know what? It goes into a bin. That amounts to every second, a garbage truck of clothes being burnt, which means it is one and a half Empire State buildings being filled with clothes that we dispose every day. That is the whole of Sydney Harbour full of disposed clothes in a year. Now imagine that. That's the wastefulness in fashion. I love putting these imageries in the minds of people yeah. because it becomes real instead of saying, you know, 2.8 billion yeah, things. I mean. yeah. um, so when you, you can start, visualize two, it. Then it makes me feel sick in the stomach when I say something cheap is worth having. Because if you really do your research, it may be cheap for you, but someone else is paying for the cheap stuff that you're buying and the one who's paying for it the factory workers say sitting in bangladesh in cambodia in vietnam in massive factories not being pay, paid enough money not living in uh, healthy conditions yeah. or working in healthy conditions most of them are by the way women uh, factory workers so it's a gender issue um, there are factories in india down south where young women who are factory workers making our cheap t-shirts they are given pills so they don't menstruate because when they menstruate they take a couple of days off because of the pain or they take a couple of hours off because they have to go and look after their bodies because you're bleeding and they are given pills so they don't menstruate so they can continue to produce for us so we can say oh my god how cool is this that i can buy a t-shirt for $2.99, it's so cool. Wear it once and then throw it in a bin. See, that's so powerful. It's costing, that quote there, now I'll minimize, but it's like, it's costing someone else for your cheap fashion. Yeah. yeah. Someone is paying for it. Someone's someone may be in three it. continents away from you, but someone is paying. That's, that's really powerful. Can you tell me, so in terms of the, the quarter life crazy, You've got this moment in life, you're a Vogue fashion editor um, and you're, you are create, you're, you're in a world of excellence, you're creating something, you're being, you're living what you think is true to you then. Tell me more about this jump and this leap of yeah. going to Bali. So for example, I feel like a lot of people um, get to, with the quarter life crisis, get to a point where they're just like, I'm living a life, it's lovely, it's beautiful, I'm having so much fun, I'm making a lot of money. But then there is like a deep knowing in your stomach that you want to do more. You want to have more meaning. You want to have more value. You want to find impact. Tell me about that story, that transition for you. I was having so much fun in Vogue India. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like who wants to give up the job? And I was a fashion features director, which meant that all the big interviews I had to do. So my life literally was flying to Sicily sitting on a 120-foot yacht with Dolce Gabbana and interviewing, then going to France, going to Paris and sitting next to Karl Lagerfeld and interviewing him, then going to Tokyo to interview Raph Simmons, then go... Dream job. Of course. Dream job because I was lucky to meet the real creators, the real thinkers and the imaginations of these people who created our amazing, flourishing fashion industry. So I'm grateful for all of that. But simultaneously, while I was in Vogue, I also started becoming part of a variety of summits and conferences all over the world that was talking about sustainability. You know, so if you're in Scandinavian countries, it was all about, wow, you can make amazing silk from crop waste. 
So oh. you don't have to kill every worm to bring that silk, right? Or that you don't have to kill animals for leather. The best vegan leathers coming out from Italy, uh, Vigia, they make it out of um, grape, grapes, the skins of grapes from vineyards that are discarded, turned into beautiful leather. So when you go to these conferences, you hear a completely different dialogue about fashion. They're all geeks. They're all biochemical engineers who are collaborating with uh, Silicon Valley startups who are talking about innovation and technology and making a better world. And so that was the world that I got introduced to. So my research went deeper into really what is unsustainable? I didn't even understand what sustainability meant when I was working with Vogue because we were in a boom, 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 you know, va, va, boom world. And it was fine because we are never taught these things. Yeah. It takes a lot of personal grit, a lot of personal gumption to sit there and figure out why and how and this is an unequal system and this is socially unequal, this is economically unequal, blah, blah, blah. So that happens simultaneously and I... While I was in India with Vogue, I saw myself gravitate towards sustainability in fashion. Okay. Very much part of the fashion industry. At the same time, living in Bombay and living a high life, high profile life with a shitty marriage that was coming to an end, personal distress that was overwhelming, um, I decided I needed a change of scene. So it was a time that I moved my entire life from the bustling city of Bombay of 22 million yeah. people and moved to Bali. And when I moved, uh, I pretty much gave up everything, including all my Vogue goodies. Yeah. 90% of my goodies I literally gave away, came to Bali with three suitcases. Now a newly single mom uh, with a nine-year-old. Oh, wow. How and with three suitcases, we arrived in Ubud. And that pretty much changed my life. Because, as you know, we live in Bali. You know, there's no, we walk barefoot to restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> we barely comb my hair. <laughs> I, I felt so free not to live up to anyone's expectations. Yeah. So my journey towards sustainable fashion became even stronger. And um, then, I, then I could talk about sustainable ideologies, sustainable philosophies. I could deep dive into it because I had all the time here. I still worked with Vogue at the time, mm -hmm. but the transition that made me resign from Vogue happened to happen very organically. Yeah. This was not about distress, leaving or hating. It was, I, I owe so much to Vogue for having yeah, shown so me grateful. that world, yeah. shown me this incredible world and allowing me this personal journey to say, yes, I still love fashion, but I really want to talk about sustainable fashion and make that cool, make it a hit. And hopefully the vogues of the world will then also focus on, which they do now, Yeah. which they do now. The best part about being in Bali was the time that it became slow, I could think. And one of the things that came out of the slowness was suddenly I started thinking about Mahatma Gandhi and his principles and what he lived by. And he was a spiritualist political activist, a humanitarian, and almost a political anarchist, okay? And I'll get, that, get to that later. But he followed a bunch of these principles, one of them being ahimsa, which means non-violence, non-violence in thoughts, deeds, and actions. And I sat back and thought, why can't we apply these principles to the fashion industry, to the luxury business? So when I came to Uber, I joined a co-working space, put my head down, and I started my research, and I wrote a big paper, a speech, basically, on how to use Gandhi's principles yes. in the fashion business. And at that time, I was still with Vogue. And lo and behold, Condé Nast International, which is headed by Susie Menkes, who is legendary, they do this luxury conference in different parts of the world every year. And I've been her protege for years and years. Yeah. And she wrote me this letter saying, you're the first person I'm inviting to be one of the keynote speakers because the topic is on mindful luxury. Wow. And I had the speech written. It was already there? And so... Had you published the speech? 
I, it's published. It's yeah. come out. In fact, Vogue Portugal just published it a week back, oh, and it's God. on my Instagram. Uh, and it's, it's Portuguese, but it's appeared in many other places. I did a TED Talk based TED, TEDx talk in Ubud based on that. So, I mean, who would have thought? Like, I wrote it out of extreme humility and because you're talking about Gandhi. Yeah, you know, of I'm a, a humble man with a loincloth, look practically naked for that little bit of cloth over his waist, right? Yeah. Whom Winston Churchill called that half-naked fakir. Fakir being the poorest of the poor and Gandhi took that as a compliment because he identified with the poor. So he wanted to look the part. So, so his clothing became a big part of his political and social ideology. Anyway, so that's, that's the whole talk is there. So anyway, in Ubud, I wrote this speech and it was incredible that serendipity, I get this call to do this talk. And what I found fascinating was it was in Oman and everyone from the owner of Condé Nast, Jonathan Newhouse, to CEO of Vetemont, to Alba Elbas. I mean, these are like eight plus, plus, plus invitees of Condé Nast, listening to this puny little me <laughs> talking about Gandhi and fashion. Yeah. Like, they're going, why on earth would but you put these two together? But that's, it just seems like you're so magical at bringing two things together and relating them. That's what it seems like your talents really lie in, is joining. I have to say, I love this, like being, bringing incongruous yeah. things together. But anyway, that's, it's not even me. It's Gandhi's philosophy that drove me into But what was most fascinating was when I gave that talk, I was shaking inside because you're talking to high-end luxury, oh top executives and designers. And I'm like, oh my God, I must look like an idiot talking about these two incongruous topics, Gandhi and luxury, you know? Yeah. But I cannot tell you how well it was received. How well it was received, not because of me, but because Gandhi's principles resonated so deeply with all of them. There were so many of the top people that I've admired in my life in the fashion industry who had already read several books written by Gandhi. Yeah. They'd already seen him as a hero. You know, it's like saying Nelson Mandela is my hero or Martin Luther King. And so they were already in awe. And to bring that fashion perspective into someone who you thought was heroic in the business now, I think that's what resonated. That's what made me feel... It's a connection. The connection. I felt extremely humbled by the reaction because I literally thought I'm going to be one of those... You know, the speakers at the end, <laughs> almost like a filler. <laughs> That's incredible. But it went well because it resonated with people, because people were willing to listen. And uh, it was a very fertile time to talk about these topics. Yeah. Do you think it is getting better? So in terms of with the fast fashion, with the wages, is it getting better in terms of are we getting to a point where we are being more environmentally friendly or are we still just right at the beginning? Well, a lot changed after what's called the Rana factory collapse. So I don't expect everyone who's not in the fashion world to understand this. But about 10 years back, a massive factory in Bangladesh. Now, Bangladesh is the second largest producer of garments for the Western world wow. after China. Okay. Yeah their GDP, their economy, runs on the rag trade that is, comes from mostly fast fashion brands that manufacture in Bangladesh. And obviously, it's made very cheaply, yeah. as you can well imagine, because it's a developing nation. And what happened was this Rana factory collapsed. And when it collapsed, it became clear to the world how dysfunctional the fashion system was because... There was no security for those hundreds, thousands of people who worked inside the factory. So it, it collapsed the whole thing. It building. collapsed. Wow. It killed more than 2,000 people. More, most of them were women. Most of them were women. And they were then digging into the dirt, you see that the factory was unstable to begin with. They didn't have exits. The people, when there was a fire, they were blocked. There was no exits. 
So the deaths happen because of negligence, poor quality uh, in terms of uh, worker safety. Um, it just exposed a system where there was no accountability for other people's lives that were making clothes and making billionaires out of fast fashion company shareholders in the Western world. So the biggest activists, including people like Livia Firth, all, it became like a benchmark for how the system has to change. Yeah. And there's a brilliant documentary for anyone who wants to understand the length and breadth of how dysfunctional the fashion industry is. It was based on the Rana factory collapse. It was, it's, it's called The True Cost. Made by a phenomenal, award-winning documentary filmmaker from L.A. called Andrew Morgan. He's not even into fashion, but he saw a New York Times picture, he says it himself, of, you know, pictures of all these women, factory women, who have lost their lives. Mm. And there are all these kids trying to identify if their mother is alive or dead. Oh, when God, he, that breaks yeah, your heart. It breaks your heart. When he saw that, he decided that he wanted to make a documentary. And he made one called The Third True Cost. Please, anyone who's buying any form of clothing, which is just about all of us, please watch it so you understand what the trajectory of our consuming, buying power leads to. And what choices, what better choices we can make so that we don't harm people and the planet. So it was a turning point. That was a big turning point. So a lot of systems started getting rectified. A lot of companies were called out. And now we live in a world of social media, right? Fashion revolution is, I mean, you know about fashion revolution as a social media platform, um, activist platform that is run by Ursula, who is a phenomenal woman. So you can tag companies now and say, who made my clothes? I want to see the face. Who made my clothes? And you can hashtag that and then tag Zara or H&M or Gucci or whatever. Who made my clothes? We don't want What's people to be... What's that website? It's called Fashion Revolution. Fashion Revolution. Go, go join them on Instagram. Go to their website. See the phenomenal work. And Fashion Revolution is one of them. There's a global fashion exchange. There's, there's tons. So the activism started and... I'm not saying this started just because of the Rana factory collapse. It was, it was already happening, but it heightened the urgency. Yeah. You know? And now with COVID, it's become even clearer how screwed up the system is. Yeah. Because all the big brands that placed their contracts in countries like Bangladesh, they withdrew it. As soon as COVID happened, they withdrew it, which means they defaulted their contracts to the excess of two billion US dollars. So the factory workers in Bangladesh are not worried about COVID. They're worried about starvation. And this is based on the t-shirts and the sweatpants and the hoodies that we buy. So don't take your clothes lightly. Yeah. So COVID exposed the system even more. The supply chain collapsed, right? Because now nothing can travel from one country to another. We are wearing shirts. You're wearing a t-shirt right now. Yeah. Maybe the embroidery, the cotton has come from Bangladesh. The, the graphic was done in India. If you, if the, the buttons would come from China. Yeah. You know, this was pre-COVID. Now the supply chain is gone. And you see how dysfunctional the system is because millions of people are out of work because the system only benefits some. And there's nothing protecting some. them. Yeah, there's no... There's, there's nothing to protect them. It's it it's just it makes you really conscious of everything you're doing. So it's like a, a second decision of someone brought me this top because it's got free giraffes on it, and I love giraffes because that's my my favorite. I've got them tattooed on me as well. But it's a conscious. It's like oh here are that's relatable to Amy. I'll buy it cheaply. There we go. And for me, it was a lovely gift. But there's so much more behind it that you have no idea about. Yeah, this is not to say not to buy. Yeah, you need to buy. Yeah, because. It's an industry, it's almost three, four trillion dollar industry that employs millions and millions of people all over the world. And a lot of these jobs are needed in the developing countries. Yeah. Like Indonesia is one of the biggest manufacturing countries in the world. Um, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia, you name it. 
almost 80% of the clothes that are made for the Western world is actually made in this part of the world, in Asia. Yeah. We need the jobs. So we need to buy, but we need to buy knowing very well that when you put your money somewhere, please be aware where it's going and whether your idea of cheap is hurting someone else's life in another country. So just tell me a bit about how that matches up. So for example, if we need to still buy for the for them to ha- for these people factory workers and um, to have the jobs, how do we as individuals help with the change? Is it by only buying certain products? How does it work? So as a consumer, yeah. because I'm a consumer, you're a consumer, we're normal human beings who like to go shop and buy beautiful things, right? A don't buy too much because environmentally you're screwing up a planet. As I told you, one garbage truck a second going into a landfill. Most of them are polyester clothes. That means each polyester takes about 500 years, if not more, to degrade. And it just fouls the soil, the very soil where our plants are growing, the very plants that we put into our bodies, what the cows are grazing. So it's the entire chain of livelihood of life itself gets degraded by the choices that we make. So buy less. Buy less. So you're not throwing away. Yeah. Buy things of value. Understand what is the fabric that you are choosing to buy? Where did it come from? As I told you. Find a home. Fashion revolution. Hashtag who made my clothes? Make the companies accountable. We have our smartphones in our hands. You can go and check out a brand before you buy it online and see what are they about. We know that. We know that whole that about the brand, what kind of policy they have, where do they manufacture. We have information at our fingertips. Please, let's use that. Yeah. You know, these are smartphones. We are holding that power in our hands to find out and be knowledgeable about uh, the products that we buy. And just giving yourself a break, giving your earth a break by going on shopping diets. Yeah. Here we are in Bali. We go on all kinds of diets to cleanse our system. Yeah, (laughs) that's so true. And yet we don't think going on a shopping diet. So we don't buy and buy and buy. Buy because it's cheap. And then dispose because we don't care where it goes. Yeah. That we need to stop. And every time you buy well, Every time you buy something that is slightly more expensive, understand why it may be more expensive. Maybe the factory worker is getting a fair wage. Maybe she's able to give enough food to her children, put them into an education system. So we shouldn't say cheap is good. Buy things of value. I'm the big supporter of buying locally and made by hand. Let's buy the ikats from Bali and all over Indonesia. Let's go to those villages and see where these artisans and how they work and how they live. Yeah, it's customized as well, then. It's, it's one of a kind normally. It's not one mass of a produced. Kind. You're not going to find it everywhere. By all means, go out there and buy. This is the last thing I would want to say, which is don't buy because it supports an entire financial eco, ecosystem that brings countries out of poverty. Yeah. You know, how does a country go from developing to a developed nation? It is through industry and hard work and consumerism. I get it. But as individual, if you are talking about individual responsibility, this is very much what Gandhi said. If you want a collective change, then you have to take individual responsibility. What I buy, what my choices are for me personally, has to be good enough. And then if every other person is thinking the same way, then it's social movement, right? Yeah, then 100%. it's collective change. Collective change, social movement. That is amazing. In terms of, can we talk a little bit more personally about you? Just in terms of, and your ideas. So in the sense of, why do you think that less young people aren't getting as involved in um, fashion politics, politics in general, that kind of thing? Why do we fear it or numb ourselves down from it? I feel sorry for the generation that, you know, 
They're all social media activists. They'll be the first ones to come and join a protest and support LGBTQ rights or Black Lives Matter or gender or what have you. You see it all over social media. It's all the young people out there. In fact, fashion has never been more important because you can see in the clothes that they wear, their slogans, that this is what they stand for. Everyone doesn't have a microphone, but they all know that they're being captured on social media. So fashion is a very visual medium. So they wear their slogan, their philosophy, their ideology on their sleeves, literally, Yeah. right? So I think their level of involvement is very street-driven. Yeah. But to fathom the, the, the complexity of what governments do to us while they collaborate with multinational companies, with colossal uh, tech companies that are controlling our point of view, I find, like, how many people are going to deep dive into this to understand I'm involved. Of course I'm involved. That's what the kids say, right? I'm on the street. I'm marching. Of course I'm involved. But is it affecting uh, policy change? Not at all. In fact, the divide is becoming even more. The left and the right, the black and the white, everything is becoming more and more divided because we are being fed on social media and teenagers and the younger generations are hooked onto social media where algorithms are telling you what you should believe in. You're being driven to be divided. So is that real activism? I have all full regard and respect for anyone who goes on the streets. But I think the bigger picture of how you're being controlled by social media, by... Massive companies, whether it's the Facebooks and um, Twitter and what have you, that actually know how to divide and rule, that takes a lot of deep diving into. I just watched a Netflix series, which I recommend again that everyone must watch. It's called The Social Dilemma. Uh, I've seen that advertised, I haven't watched that one yet. Please watch it because it is a documentary recited by the very people who created the tools that you and I have fallen for. The like buttons that allows the algorithm to then decide, okay, she's this kind of a person. If she likes 20 things of this kind, she's a kind of person. And that's just one part of us that we give away, right? And so it's a series of men and women who have been at the forefront of Facebook, WhatsApp, Pinterest, you name it, all the big social media platforms, they were the ones who created the tools. And now they're standing up and saying, we need to redress this problem and make a more humane system where we do not allow the kind of protests that are happening on the streets that's based not necessarily on policy change. It's based on what is being fed to you dividing you and me further and further away. I don't know. I'm not even American, but I know more about American politics than I know about Indian politics right now because that's what comes into my feed as someone who does not like like Trump, anti-Trump, and the rhetoric that comes through. And then I get even more angry at me, like, how can you be that kind of person? So if I'm called on to be on the street, I know which side of the street I want to be on. But does that affect policy change? Not at all. In fact, the technocrats, the politicians are probably laughing themselves to the bank right now because they have used human beings, used the algorithms, used our data, used human beings as products. They're not selling us anything. They're selling us. Oh, wow. So you have to watch Social Dilemma is... I wish they would show it at every school. I wish they would show... Uh, the true cost, which is about fashion and the dysfunctional aspects of it. I mean, these are incredible documentaries that are accessible at our fingertips. And so I encourage every young person. So if you ask me, are young people engaged in politics? I don't think so. I think they engage in activism. And we have to understand the difference between the two. Because politics is disgraceful at this moment. Yeah. And politics is using activism to divide people. 
Yeah, see, because my um, I've got a really good friend, and he told me something a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, so you've got 10% of the far left, and you've got 10% of the far right, and you've got the 80% in the middle. The problem is, is that if, say, I'm the same as you, I'm very, like, for equal human rights, um, anti-Trump, that kind of thing. But if we start attacking the people in the middle, we drive the people in the middle further to the to the right. I'm getting confused. But you drive that 80% the opposite way. So we're automatically attacking the people that we want to join us. Right. Do you know what I mean? That right. kind of... Um, I think with the younger generation, I mean, you know, I'm older and it's it took me so much time to even reach this point to understand there's a much bigger system at play. Yeah. You know, it is not just about me standing up for LGBTQ rights and saying Black Lives Matter, which I truly believe in. And I may go with the purest of hearts on the street, perhaps get beaten up even, right? But the very systems that we are fighting are the very systems that are creating this almost like a holographic world that we are walking into so that they can divide and rule. So tell me, do you know about, is there an outcome? Is there a way to stop that cycle? We, or are we still finding out? I live in a jungle. <laughs> Fighting in my own stupidity and my own little thoughts. But when I watch documentaries of these, these kinds, that comes from the core of these tech companies that created the systems that now manipulate us, right? It makes me really believe that the system can only be changed by the very creators of destruction. Mm. So I can't change the algorithm that makes me go onto social media feed that gives me only what I want to hear again and again and again and again, mm -hmm. right? I'm already beholden and slave to the system that's been created. So then who do we address this problem to? It has to be the very people who created the system. And right now, it's not even the politicians. The politicians are led by what algorithms can do, what social media can do that, you know, elections can be rigged because of social media, because of the data mining that's happening because of all these tools that have come up, right? So even politicians are little tools in the hands of technocrats because they are giving us the tools. Now, can you change to make those tools more humane? So we've got to address the people making them. It's the people who are making the very things that we consume. Oh, God, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. And so as, so as, as a consumer, as um, a simple human being, we need to empower ourselves with more knowledge. We need to deep dive. It's not enough to just go to the first three pages of Google and think that you've got all your knowledge from that. And it's not enough to just, like, post the black photo on, on Which, Instagram. Which, by the way, didn't even serve any purpose. Yeah. It blacked out all the information that Black Lives Matter needed to send out to the world. Instead, if you went to Black Lives Matter, it was a bunch of black, empty yeah. <laughs> spaces. And did we think we were doing something wrong? No. no, we were doing something because we thought we stand by you, my brothers and sisters of color, right? Look how, how we got conned. God. Yeah, it's a mindfuck. Sorry yeah. to say the big words. No, 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 it's okay, <laughs> I swear all the time on this. That's that's so true. So it's education and it's challenging the people that are creating the system. Challenging your own beliefs. Yeah. You know, I can sit here and think my worldview is my worldview because I'm getting what I want in my social media feed, in my Instagram, in Twitter. It's almost like I'm living in a bubble. I get exactly what I want. I have no idea what the other person's point of view is. Even the one who is a dissenter, someone I may not like. But it's important that I know that the person who loves Trump, for instance, what is it about that person? What were his, what were his rationale? Yes. Right? I don't go into that space at all because it never comes into my world. It's for me, I always find it. I'm like, I see these people that support Trump and I'm just like, I have nothing in common with you. I hate you. I detest you. But you, that's never going to, it's just going to be a constant battle then. I need to understand, like you're saying, I need to understand why do they feel this way? What emotion, even though I completely disagree with their beliefs, what emotion can I relate to that belief? So they feel scared. Yeah. They feel 
worried and I can I feel those same emotions yeah. I don't have the same beliefs but I have those same emotions and that's how you relate to them isn't yeah. it because it's, it's it's pretty ironic because we say we are living in the most heightened age of communication yet we don't know how to communicate with each other anymore yes we do you know we seem to have access to every form of communication what channels don't you have what mediums don't you have what platforms tech platforms don't you have yet we are the worst communicators at this point in life. God, yeah. My head is blown. If you liked or hated that episode, please subscribe, rate and review it on all your podcast channels. You can find me on Instagram at Amy Mansono. You can't find me on Facebook or you can email me at amy at quarterlifecrazy.com. Enjoy. Enjoy.